Welcome back to the Speaking and Communicating Podcast. I am your host, Roberta. If you are looking to improve your communication skills, both professionally and personally, this is the podcast you should be tuning into. By the end of this episode, please remember to subscribe, give a rating and a review. On this podcast, we always emphasize the importance of storytelling when doing business presentations or giving keynote speeches. Today, my guest, Glenn Daniels II, a great storyteller, is here to share with us what has been the recipe for his success in his speeches when it comes to storytelling and what makes for a great leader. Before I go any further, please help me welcome Glenn to the show. Hello, Glenn. Hello, and good morning. And I know somebody's saying, wait a minute, it's not morning where I am now. It's morning someplace, okay? It's just accept the fact, it's morning someplace. Exactly. I energy mornings, so. It's morning in some place. So I'm in Chicago. Where in the U.S. are you based? I'm in Denver. And it was surprising for me to hear that Denver is now the third busiest airport and Chicago is the fourth busiest now. You're taking over O'Hare spot? Here's a rub about that. Uh. It depends on the day of the week. Oh. Okay. Certain days of the week, O'Hare is still third. So number one is Atlanta. Number two is Dallas. And Denver and Chicago will trade places depending on the day of the week. Okay. Yeah. So, Glenn, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I've been doing this for a long time. Uh, I always hesitate to say how long because I don't want to look like I've been doing it for 30 plus years. But I started almost just a few years outside of college. And it just happened to meet the right person who was looking for somebody who felt would be a good partner. I don't know why he decided I was going to be. So mm-hmm. I worked, started speaking, started getting better. Went out on my own, started getting better. Realized, though, motivation only goes so far. So my background became the ideal of let's teach skills and techniques. I started really working on skills and techniques. At first, it was skills and techniques around neuro-linguistic programming or selling. And then I started saying, well, really, our challenge in this world is our leadership. Our leaders don't really know how to lead. And I hate to say that, but if you think about it, most leaders were promoted because they were doing the previous job well. Yes. And so they get promoted. This So most leaders don't have formal training in most companies. They were doing that previous job well, but they weren't doing the leadership part well. Part of that is because if you're leading a team of people, they expect you to know their, what they're doing as well as they do. They expect you to be able to answer questions about this software program that they're writing or the code they're writing or whatever it is. As a leader, that's not what you're there for. You're not there to do the work. You're there to develop your people. You're there to develop the people so they can grow and move up in the organization or they're not interested in moving up, do their job in a comfortable manner where they can do their job better and deliver higher quality and just develop that way. So that's what I started trying to teach. So I did that for a long time. And even through the last century up until I got to the point where I started saying, okay, skills and techniques, and we need to really start to make a difference. I got to the point rapidly that I need to take a stand. And that stand was, as leaders that are shaping this world. Our leadership, and they learn how to treat people. They learn how to create accountability and trust. And they learn that people need to stand on their shoulders. So that started about 2005. I started the wing of the publishing company to create textbooks. Mm. We quickly got away from publishing other people's works, including my own work. In the four books that I've written, I don't allow them to be published by my company. If they're going to get published by somebody, it's going to be outside of that. I have my second book I wrote was a Pulitzer-nominated book. My company is not going to publish it. 
we publish textbooks for universities. Why? Because we want leadership skills and techniques. So when these people leave this university and they go work with staff, they're hoping people become more confident, more job savvy, and all that stuff goes back home with them. So now maybe they're teaching their kids how to be more confident. Maybe they're using these skills to better connect with their spouse. Maybe they're happier, which leads to the next generation growing up happier. Maybe they're growing in the business well enough that they're passionate about what they're doing so they can grow with it, so they can help their kids go to college. Maybe that's going to be the first generation of kids to go to college, or maybe it's the first generation of kids to go to an Ivy League school mm. if they consider it better. So I moved into that, and then we really started, as there's a lot of demand. It started to build up for me to come share what I learned from curating thought leaders. So I would go share that message. And that started to pick up a whole lot. So I was doing a whole lot of speaking. And then I started helping speakers be better speakers. But all went away from that because I wanted to take a stand to make sure that we are helping organizations and people create a legacy. So that's, in a nutshell, the course of my career. Right. And right now, it's all about let's curate information so people can learn and be better. You talked about leadership, and that's the work you've been doing since the last century. Have you seen those changes happen that now organizations are becoming more aware of what kind of leader they should be choosing and training and inducting into those roles? Yes, I have seen it. And this is counterintuitive, but I've seen the United States military make these changes before a lot of private companies though. They started making the change to give their leaders ownership of the situation. So a lot of changes have happened, but you see it now. And I hate to say that as being on the cusp of baby boomer and the generation behind it. I don't know what they call that generation behind the baby boomers, but I'm on the cusp of that. Those two generations, we were command and control. We were competition. I am seeing now many more companies realizing we're going to be collaborative. We need leaders who are willing to break the walls down to work with people. Seeing a lot more of that. And as much as we like to talk bad about the millennials, got to remember, we raised them. Exactly. I raised my millennial daughter. But their ideal of being a collaborative leader, a servant leader, if you will, I see a lot of that coming on now. I see a lot of people saying, let's adopt that role. I'm here to serve you so you can do your job better, faster, and with a higher quality. No, we don't bet math by millennials. And mm -hmm. also what I find is that when it comes to leadership, so the style that existed previously now we are more human focused, not yes. just tech skills focused. Well, this great resignation where everybody's quitting the jobs, they're quitting it because that particular company wasn't focused on their largest resource, humans. Mm -hmm. A lot of companies have lost the idea of creating a company that's lasting 100 years. They were more concerned about the next quarter. But yeah, that's the way it used to be. And a lot of people are leaving, starting their own companies. We're becoming contractors to the different things. You know, in a way, though, that's what forced the millennials down the workforce. Most of the baby boomers and the generation after that, they left because they weren't being treated right. If they're working, they created their own domains. Right. And so we've come to a place where there's sort of like a power shift and people are saying, you know what? Yes, in the previous generations, I would have stuck at a dead-end job for the mortgage and to fit my kids, but now I have options. We were just talking in our class on emotional intelligence. We were talking this ideal about millennials believe in collaboration. Sometimes it's hard to give up the control, but if you want a great organization as a leader, give your team ownership. Colin Powell, 
before he transitioned, he was telling a story about the first Gulf War. And he went to his general, Norman Schwarzkopf, and said, how do we win this? What do we have to do? He sat down with Norman Schwarzkopf and listened to what he said and followed what he said with a couple small adjustments. They talked about it, and this is what had to happen because he said, he's doing that job every day. Yes, I may be the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I'm head of all the services. But this is somebody I can collaborate with because he's going to lead all the services in the battle. I'm not going to sit here in a vacuum and create but prove I'm smarter. I'm going to prove I'm smarter by working with the man who is smarter. Right. I think collaboration is king. And I think we're starting to get that in some of the other companies, the younger companies, mm. or the companies who are forward thinking. I'm going to collaborate with the other folks and get there. Collaboration will always be better than competition. It is. There's a lot of companies who are still trying to be competitive and beat you down. And there's still some level of success. If you look at the Fortune Top 100, there's some companies right at the very top of it who do not treat their employees well. If I hire 20 employees, six months later, I'm going to hire 20 more. I turn over. Mm, mm. Speaking of collaboration, I love the story you told about the podcasters from Thailand. Would you like to share that with us again? We both have podcasts. I want you on my podcast because... After I started researching you a little bit more, I said, oh, she should be on the podcast. She's a thought leader. So that helps each other. I started to notice, though, because I would like to retire in Thailand, specifically Chiang Mai, Thailand. So I started watching podcasts from this one gentleman called Walkabout Wayne. And he was walking about Chiang Mai, showing the sights and showing the living, and I started liking that. One day he had a guest on his show. His name was Chai Travel. That was his podcast, Chai Travel. He was also in Chiang Mai. Now, Chiang Mai is not a very large city compared to Bangkok, but they both were broadcasting and creating podcasts and blogs from Chiang Mai. But he had this guy as a guest. They're walking around talking about how each of them do their podcast and their process and why they pick this and why they do that and why they don't pick going in this area. They just had a great interchange. At the end of the show, Wayne comes on and says, okay, don't forget to check the description and sign up and join Wayne. I did. But, but three months later, I'm listening to Wayne walk around and Chai's another back on his show being a guest. And they're laughing and having a good time. They connected. And they could tell that they were friends away from the podcast. So they're laughing, having a good time. They're talking about the food you get in Chiang Mai. And then Chai mentioned, he goes, you know what? I got to tell you, after I did your show last time, I picked up 5,000 subscribers overnight. Wow. And then it was kind of funny because there was a hint of a competition a little bit here. But then Wayne goes, oh, well, when I did your show, I only got 3,000. What's wrong with you, dude? You know, this is like teasing them. But 3,000 <laughs> subscribers overnight because... By collaborating with by your supposed competition. Yes. Wow. Yes. So collaboration is the new way to win competition. Mm. These guys are collaborating with each other, and they're trying for what you might think is the same audience. Their podcast is extremely different. But even if it was the same audience, if there's 100 million people tuning in the podcast about Thailand, how many of those people does Walkabout Wayne need in order for him to be a successful YouTube blogger and make it a full-time position. Not necessarily all the 100 million. No, he needs maybe 3,000. So that's what he should be focused on, doing the best he can so he can attract those 3,000, get more Mm. great. I believe that both about Chai Travel and Walkabout Wayne. There's another gentleman who's closer to my age, and he doesn't do anything with anybody. His fans are his fans, Mm. and they'll rave about him, but he's not growing like these other two gentlemen are. This is going on throughout all of the YouTube land, people collaborating. Another quick story about that. What I do oftentimes when I'm working at my desk, if it's not really heavy creative work, 
I'll put on the YouTube channel that if they're doing live feeds from different airports. Watching planes land and take off, I love it. So there's a podcast. This guy does this in London. I think it's kind of the original person where he got and got a good spot and he would film planes landing and he's talking. He's singing. He's silly. You know, who wants to watch airplanes landing all day long? I do. So I have it on. Well, now other people started filming success once he crossed over 300,000 subscribers. A lot of people starting to do it. But there's a channel that does Los Angeles. Films the runway, takes off and everything that has commentary. Well, this guy, his podcast is called Big Jet TV. He decided that he's flying to the United States and he's going to go to the United States and take pictures. But then he also is on this guy's podcast. Mm. Their growth was astronomical because they collaborated. Yeah. Yeah. You can take that same story and put it in a lot of different organizations. When IBM started collaborating with HP, you would think those two could never get along. Or Xerox, you think those two could never get along. But they started collaborating, started working together, started putting out different products, different things. You're not going to put out the same podcast, but it's going to be packaged differently. We're going to draw different out people. Mm-hmm. Why not collaborate? It's always mutually beneficial. Yes, it really is. Right. Abundance thinking. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. These guys weren't worried about losing what they had. They were great with it. It's abundance. It's not this scarcity issue that I got to hold tight to what I have because I could lose it. Let me open up my hand because more can come to me with open hands than closed fence. That is so true. I love the story of your grandson. Tell us about that. (laughs) So my mother and dad said my grandson is just like I was at his age moving and always up to something. So he likes to do little things for people and do, he just likes to have fun. So revenge grandparenting. Oh yes, the yeah, idea so. that grandparents are gonna spoil the grandkids as revenge to the parents because parents didn't listen to them when they were young. And make no mistakes, sometimes I am that way. <laughs> but what I do for my grandson, he likes to come here because he knows when he comes here, there's a bowl of candy sitting there, and it's his candy. Okay, And it took him a while to kind of get used to that, because at first, he would take as many as he could. But now he knows it's his candy. He could be not be here for a week or two weeks, but that bowl has the same amount of candy in there. It's his candy. So now you'll see him get one piece of candy, go about his business, and maybe get another piece of candy. Because he's got that abundant thinking. I don't need to hoard it. I don't need to be worried about it disappearing. I can go get it. Well, I did the same thing for my daughter. She doesn't like me having candy. But I did the same thing for my daughter. I take care of my folks, and they have cookies. He knows he can go have a cookie whenever he wants to. He doesn't even have to ask. All he does out of courtesy. But he can go get a cookie whenever he wants to. I did that with my daughter. She had a you know, candy bowl. And I started noticing once she got used to the idea that she could have that, she didn't really go for it. But she go for it a little bit. So there's this day that he's getting suckers. He knows by color. So he's looking for going right. through, looking for colors. Then he gets his. And then he sees another sucker that was not a dum-dum, but my daughter's significant other loves it. So he takes it and he puts it in his pocket. And he's got this little sheepish look on his grin when they come to pick him up. And yeah. I knew he was up to something. He goes, Aaron, I got something for you. <laughs> and Aaron was almost at tears. How many four-year-old looked for not, because Aaron's not his dad, but made the point to give him his favorite sucker. Wow. Because of his abundant thinking that we didn't have to hammer into him. We just had to demonstrate it for him. Mm-hmm. He's very good about things. I think he went to eat a donut. Dinner was like 15, 20 minutes away. I said, well, can you wait till after dinner? Oh, I promise I'll still eat my dinner. 
He took a couple bites of his own, satisfied with the taste of it, finished his dinner. But he held up his end of the promise. Right. That applies to all of us. And as I say this, I started realizing that applies to me. This abundant thinking. Thinking, okay, I have this. I have to be grateful. I can do this because I have more than enough skills to do this. I have to be grateful. Mm-hmm. I don't have to hoard my talent. I don't have to hoard my guests. I don't have to hoard writing because I could still write things. I could still take articles from different people, publish those. I don't have to hoard all this stuff. I can give. Today was an entire six-hour class on emotional intelligence. I'm going to break that up and give it to you for free. I don't need to hoard that. Mm. Here's what some people are afraid of, though, when it comes to hoarding, and they don't quite understand it. When I do keynotes, gentleman taught me once, if you really want to do a keynotes, make a lot of money. What you do is you set your books up and you put it out of a black bag and say, pay what you want to a volunteer payment. Okay, well, scarcity thinking says, well, people are going to take my books and not pay me. I'm going to go broke. Abundance thinking proved that he was right. I made more money from selling books that day, having fewer books going out, but I made more money. On average. So, you know, I always look and say, I'm going to sell 10% of what's there. There's 150 people, whatever that 15% is, that's, you know, 10%, 15%. That's how many books I'm going to sell. Mm. So the numbers stay true, but I made more money. Just because people start realizing, well, he's not asking for it. He's not saying, just give him what you think is worth. Just be generous, really sharing. Yeah. Because yeah. you also came with that mindset and energy. Yeah. The guy who taught me this, and mm. I'll drop the name because it was amazing. Deepak Chopra. Oh, uh, Yes. I know him, yes. Okay. I listen to a lot of his meditations. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and this is how this benefited you, too, because he has this abundant thinking. I was leaning over to look at his book because I have it on my shelf. It's called The Future of God. So he came to do a talk, and there's a spiritual center, and we have about 16 to 1,800 seats. So he sold out, of course. Oddly enough, though, every person who got there got a copy of that book for free. Now, that's a great book, and it's he gave his lecture, gave everything in his lecture. And then he told you about his meditation series and how you can sign up for it. And he said, you know, it's $40 a month. It goes through it and he explains the whole thing. In conversation with him later on, I started realizing, wow, to give away a book that he got from the publisher, okay, the publisher gave him promotional copies. Maybe he had to pay for a few of them, but his cost would have been about $5 or so for the hard copy book. But he gave it away because he gave it away, the abundant thinking, not holding on and saying, I got to sell the books what I got for. He got 800 new subscribers for his $40 a month meditation program. That's amazing. And it's a great program. Yes. Yeah. It's a great program. And now I think he's giving it away free. YouTube wasn't quite what it is. Now you can get on YouTube and start it. But he has the app that was $40 a month and he got 800 new people. Do you think Let's that see. was worth to have the abundant thinking? Abundant thinking. You know how in the workplace, if we are colleagues and we want the promotion, I'm a step on you to hopefully be the one to get promoted and you're not, which is the opposite of abundance thinking. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is actually the opposite. And what you're going to do is do more harm to yourself. All right, you got the promotion. What's your self-esteem like? What do you feel like Mm -hmm. to realize that you have to hurt somebody to do it? A lot of people like to cover that up, but it goes deep. You can cover it up to the public, but it goes deep. That's going to hurt you more than anything else. Yet, if you decide to collaborate with that person, you'll probably get promoted just as fast or faster and start making more money because you will 
put together a better product, procedure, or service. Mm. So if I'm competing against so-and-so for a speaking assignment, they call me and ask me, well, what can I do? First, I used to hesitate and say, well, I'm not going to tell you what I'm doing so you can copy it. But now I started realizing, okay, I can share how I do it and what I'm going to do because you're not me. You can't copy me. So since you can't copy me, here's what I do. That's the self-esteem part of you. Yes, yes, for sure. And also, if you demonstrate that you cannot work in a team setting because you're always stepping on others thinking it's going to get you to the top, that's not demonstrating leadership qualities. And therefore, that doesn't make you a leader. No, it doesn't make you a leader at all. We talked a little bit about the leadership qualities that you should have. If you're not working with people to develop people, you're missing the very first leadership quality that you need to be at. You need to understand your number one job is to develop people. You should be looking at ways to have your team stand up on your shoulders. It's not you on their shoulders. Your number one job is to develop people. And if you're stepping on people, how are you developing people? They, you may develop them because they get inspirational dissatisfaction. And then they say, I'm going to work harder than you. But if you're stepping on people, how are you developing people? Leaders need to understand that number one job is not to be the worker bee, is not to be liked, is to develop people. The second most important one is to understand in sports parlance, you're a coach. If you're looking at football, I was listening to Pete Carroll talk about this one day. Pete Carroll is the head football coach of Seattle. And he was talking about the fact that as a head coach, I got a view of my stuff as a CEO. The CEO is responsible. They have ownership for three parts. I have ownership and I'm responsible for the team plan as a whole together, but I'm responsible for offense, defense, and special teams. Who I'm responsible for is the coaches that are there. I'm going to develop them to be better. Let's put that in business thing. What you're responsible for as a leader is to deliver your product faster, easier delivery process, less friction, which means less friction with your team getting it accomplished, with it going through the next steps, less friction, and with high quality. You're responsible for whatever your team is doing. You got to look at it. You have to be the coach, and it's your job to coordinate that. By the way, let me backtrack just to here. So Pete Carroll says, I believe in developing the people who report to me, my coaches. I heard that he has a thing where he will, in offseason, sit down and interview all of his coaches for their next position. So his coordinators, he interviews them, and he wants them to get ready to be interviewed to become the head coach of another team. Yes. And what he's doing is getting rid of his better coaches. But he says, you know what? There's only 32 positions available, so I'm not going to get rid of them. I'm going to develop them because the next season they're better. They're helping us win more. Would you rather have somebody who has the skills and techniques that you trained there? Or would you rather have somebody there who doesn't have the skills and techniques because you're holding them, you're protecting them from going elsewhere? Third thing that they have to be aware of is you got to build some trust. Yes. That's part of it. Third and fourth, you got to build some trust because you got to be accountable. You have to be accountable for that success. You have to be accountable for delivering things on time. And when you are accountable, you have trust. When you hold people accountable, they have trust. Who wants to go to the job and not know what they're being held to, what the expectations of their job performance is? Nobody likes not knowing what to do or what's expected of them. You as a leader must make sure that you're creating trust through accountability. If you can do those three things, plus a few others, but if you can do those three things, your role as a leader is going to continue to bump up. But how we started the conversation, the question was, if you are the type of person who likes to step on people or think you have to step on people to get there, which one of those three are you violating? All of them. Yeah, all three. And you probably won't get that early payoff. Maybe in the 60s you might have, but you're probably not going to get it now. Mm. 
you're working on an online magazine for thought leaders. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, what we're doing is we're saying, and I say this in everything that I try to do, it's the thought leaders that are out throughout the world, the ones that came in the past, the ones that are now. You may not know them, but some of you know, some you don't know. But it's the thought leaders that we want to learn from. We want to pull information in. So essential leadership skills is just about that. It's not about what I write, but it's about what you write or what someone else writes. So you may not think energetic working, energetic trainer applies, but her article applies because you're going to be a better person because you're learning from a thought leader. If the more thought leaders we can put together in a collaborative, curated event, the more people are drawn to read the magazine. The more things get downloaded, the better the podcast, the better the stories are, the more people read the magazine. If I used to invite TEDx speakers to speak, I thought that'd be great. Okay, you've done a TEDx, and I know, because I did one, I know in your 18 minutes, you didn't really get a chance to really spell out what it is you're trying to teach. So we kind of switched in, okay, essential leadership skills with TEDx speaker or TED Talk speaker. What a bust that was, complete bust, because they weren't teaching. If you read something written by Warren Buffett about investing, and let's say I had him as a guest, that is pure power. That's pure education. That's something I can walk away with, skills and techniques. I don't need motivation. I don't need that rah-rah person in front of my room telling me to stand up, get excited, this and that. And yes, jump on a chair. Mm. It could be very entertaining. <laughs> yeah. But you got to wrap that stuff up in skills and techniques. You got to walk action out action steps for when I walk out of there. Yeah. We like to look at and say, here's different models for uh, training programs. I'm a big fan of the Kirkpatrick model. And to me, what that says in a nutshell is that when you're reading the story on the magazine, that story needs to make you better six months from now, as well as today. You need to be better at doing it. So you can measure this if you have a company you're working with. You can assess when you finish your workshop, six months later, send an assessment. You can do that, same thing. You just need to have the numbers and you need to see, okay, did that workshop, are they better using those skills six months from there? Are they using the skills? Time management, for example. So I have a company that loves who wants time management. But are they better than what they were three months ago? When we get together next week, are they better? If they didn't, then my curriculum failed. If they don't get the story, they're asking about procrastination. So if they don't get the story and they read through it and they don't get better, that story doesn't belong on the magazine. That's the standard. Yeah. People have to continue learning. We're not there to entertain you. If you want to be entertained, go read People magazine. (laughs) Yes, that's right. We're there to help you be better at what you're doing, to help you improve your craft. So it's a standard that we shoot for, but also understanding that me as an operating manager, and my company maybe, but I'm just head of operations, but all the other folks, they meet that standard. They have to look at that standard. And then they also have to kind of look at what's the reader interested in. The demographics may be different than what we are. So if the demographics is mid-level to senior level managers, what do they need? Mm. They don't need skills on how to talk to somebody. They need advanced skills on how to talk to somebody. They need to learn how to change their wording sometimes. They need to learn about transformational language, trans-inducing statements. They need to learn softeners. They need to learn the extension of some of these skills. If the article is not going to help them learn some of the extensions so they can practice it, then it's not meant for them. It's meant for another platform. I don't know, but here's something I've noticed about you so far. You ask questions, and then you follow the number one rule of being a great communicator. Which is? Stop talking. You ask me a question, and you stop talking. That's power. 
That's number one. If you want to be a great communicator, that's what it takes. Yet it's still a conversation. Because when I finish talking, I notice you take a second to do the number six rule. You allow yourself time to reflect before you move on. If I can get mid-level and senior-level leaders to do just those two things in the communication, six months from now, they're going to be much better off. So a podcast with somebody like you that I can ask, how do you do that? What's going on in your mind when you decide, okay, I'm going to ask a question and I'm going to stop talking? That's a lesson that a lot of senior and mid-level managers can learn from. That is amazing because that's something we take for granted. (laughs) Partly because I'm a public speaking coach and I do train my clients and say, one, listening is very important. Mm -hmm. Two ears, one mouth, use in proportion. And while listening, I wasn't thinking about my next question. I was really listening to what you were saying. That's why it takes me a bit of time to craft my next question because I didn't craft it while you were talking. That's exactly the message I want all leaders to get. I'm going to listen to you because I'm listening to you. Like I said, I haven't crafted my message until you're finished. So then I need a moment to let that happen. And it's not a very long moment. It's two or three beats in the conversation, but let it happen. That's the message that needs to go there. So if you're on my podcast, I'd ask you right now, what goes through your mind to say, stop talking? How do you put that together? That's what I would ask you. My guess is there's something that's in your background or something that you heard about that says, I'm done talking until you finish. Mm. What would you say? Another thing is sometimes people are uncomfortable with the silence, complete silence of listening to you while you are answering the question I asked previously. So I don't know if you noticed my facial expressions. It's like the physical evidence that, yes, I'm listening. And yes, I hear what you're saying. Cool. If that makes sense. No, that's interesting. It makes a lot of sense. Because that person listening to you, that you're listening to, that's actually rule number two of being a great communicator. So some of these rules are inside of you. And if I label them, you might start pointing them out. But rule number two is to make the person who's speaking feel comfortable. Mm. Make them comfortable. Put them at ease. Because when you listen, you're nodding. Like you're listening, but you're truly listening. That puts me at ease to let me ramble on a little bit because I don't feel the tension. But guess what? The fastest way, I won't say the number one way, but the fastest way to put somebody at ease is to stop talking. If I want you to be at ease, I need to stop talking and then you'll be more at ease. That makes sense. Even though I may not package them sometimes the way you just did, which is very eloquent and I'm going to use some of that. So I hope you let me. Of course. Thank you. I always emphasize those things that... That's where the breakdown usually happens and you end up thinking, did I misinterpret what Glenn said? Did he mean it this way? Why am I misunderstanding what he said? It's because while he was speaking, you were not truly listening. You were figuring out what you're going to ask next. That's what you were doing. Most people in most podcasts, if you listen to them, the person is speaking, but they're in their minds, what's my next question? So I intentionally put my questions together before you're there. I try to do the research for everybody to say, okay, this is what they're doing. Here's my question about that. Oh, wait a minute. I don't understand this book right here. Why did they do that? I try to have those questions ready. I try to go into every interview with 10 questions, except for I realize that I'm only going to ask three because as I listen to you, a new question pops up. Based on the last thing you said, right? Yes. Yeah. You said something and all of a sudden, wait a minute. Did you mean this? And I paraphrase it back to them. 
Or when you say this, and I always say, you know, give me a little bit of coaching because I'm a little bit lost. When you said this, what did you mean by that? Did you mean this? This is my understanding. And most times they come back and say, well, no, I kind of meant this instead. This is what I'm trying to get to. Oh, now I see because you're saying this. I got it, right? So paraphrase and see if it fits. But what happens is I end up going quickly off track because they said something or did something like you're doing, stop talking, paying attention. It takes me off track. And that's kind of okay. If I'm going off track, it's for learning purposes. But also, if you say something, I'm going to remember something that said, wait a minute, based on the theme of what you just said, I just remembered something else relative to that. I may not have had the question prior to our recording, but that's what happens sometimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're a thousand percent right. And I'm going to suggest that all of our leaders start that same process. Because I'm listening to you and it's going to trigger something. So my next question might be on that, what is triggered, but I'm listening. I'm doing what I can to make you feel comfortable, to make you trust me so that you can open up. You can share your feelings. You don't have to worry about, oh, well, you disagree with me, you're fired. You don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. Like I said, I used to coach speakers, you know, how to be a great speaker in front of them. I used to coach that. And it's just kind of got to the point where I think I can do a better job with the leaders. They have more of an impact on people every single day. Mm. I appreciate that you know, when someone's coaching that, I think it's required if you're going to be a speaker to get someone who can coach that for you. I think it's required because you don't see yourself. You need a, a mirror to reflect you back to you. And once you get that, once you get in front of the room, you're done talking so much. I get the biggest joy when I allow people to experience and to take ownership of the situation. When we're working with people and we're talking about how to handle a problem, the biggest joy comes in when they do it themselves. Show them what to do and step out the way for 5, 10, 15 minutes, however long it's going to take, and let them do it themselves, then debrief. I don't need to be the one talking. They do. They don't need 100% spoon feeding. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Workbooks. Yeah, I, I try to do expensive workbooks, but I also let them know I'm not doing every page in this workbook because you know how to read. But let's do things. Let's discuss. One trick that I use that I discovered on TV. This guy was on a program called NCIS. And the star of the program used to play football for UCLA. His name is Mark Harmon. So he's the big star and everybody thinks he's great. And he leads this team of investigators. Well, he got hurt or something where he's off the show. He got injured in the storyline. The second guy who was in second command took over the team. Pretty good leadership skills, but he was doing things a little bit different whatever the Mark Harmon's character's name, you know, he was pretty much dictatorial. You know, you do this, you do that. Here's what we're going to do. And my gut feeling says this is a guilty guy. Well, the guy who took over from what he was doing is a perplexed question, question of how to do it. He'd do this. He'd say, all right, campfire. Everybody would pull the chairs out from around the desk and they get in the middle of the room like they're sitting around the campfire and discuss the challenge. Why don't you do that in your workshops? Why don't you do that as a leader? Mm-hmm. Why don't you pull everybody, all your team and say, all right, campfire. But here's what was interesting. He'd give them the issue, and then he'd shut up. And then they started going back and forth. And somebody would pretty soon ask him a question, and he'd answer, and then he'd wait for them, and they'd go back and forth. Pretty soon they had their game plan in place to win. That's how your team's going to behave. He trusted them. And they trusted him. Yeah. To hear the solution, and they trusted him to say, hey, what do you think about this? And they trusted him enough to know that he's going to give an honest opinion. If he doesn't like it, he's going to tell you so, but he's not going to penalize you for it. He's going to have you, we're going to work on it some more. Right. If you're a leader of people, you want to build some trust because you know what? This ideal of brainstorming may not work so well, but this works great. Campfire, the sit down, guys. 
because we got the new project we've got to work on. How will you make it happen? Then you just sit back. Yeah, they're going to disagree. They're going to get it, but you're there to kind of moderate the disagreements. Okay, you know, we got to table that for seconds. I don't know what that answer is going to be, but let's go ahead and move on to the next phase of it. That was really powerful. And thank you for sharing that. Now, just last few words of wisdom before we wrap up. Your most important job as a leader is to develop your people. You have to find ways to educate them, to get them better. Like Pete Carroll does, he holds interviews. Like when Dan Quinn was on his staff, he interviewed him for three different jobs over three different years to help him to develop, to get better. You need to do the same thing. You need to develop your people. You need to find out what's their passion and allow that passion to help develop them on the job. Because most people don't have a passion if they're honest for what they're doing. Their passion lies outside. But you can take that same passion and use it to help develop them to be better all the way around. I will say this also, you need an operating system. You need to have a framework where everything works, just like Microsoft Windows 11 or iOS 15.7, whatever that is. You need that operating system, which means I'm going to suggest just one book to go get. And that book is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, written by Stephen Covey. Stephen R. Covey. If you have, pick it up and reread it. Use those seven habits as the operating system that everything else flows from. Those are the two things I'd like to kind of leave you with. Remember to develop people and work on your craft. Seven habits of highly effective people. Words of wisdom from Glenn Daniels II. Develop your people and live by the seven habits of highly effective people by Stephen R. Carvey. Thank you so much, Glenn, for being on our show today. Absolutely. My pleasure. And thank you. And before you go, where can you find you on social media? LinkedIn. And it's Glenn Daniels, the number two. So I'm named after my dad. But for some reason, I use the Roman numerals. People ask me, so what's Glenn Daniels II? So Glenn Daniels two is where you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find our magazine at touchstonepublishers.com. The first page will start you on the magazine journey. Well, those are the main two places. LinkedIn and the website. Touchstone yeah, Publishers. Yeah, touchstonepublishers.com. And LinkedIn, Glenn Daniels the second. Glenn Daniels, the great storyteller and who has been in the business for over three decades. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you.